Um, we can just go ahead and get started. How are you doing today, Ken? Walter, I'm doing okay. I'm uh, huh, a little winded, but I'm doing fine. I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for having me this morning. I wanted to welcome you to the Propio Rocky Podcast, where we talk about anything and everything that is relevant to today. So, um, you know, I noticed that you have the uh, Sun People Productions shirt on, of course. Yeah. It. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, about the the uh, the company, a little bit? Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> maybe you have to edit that. Um, I am. Uh, my name is Ken Ngua. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I am based out of Brooklyn, New York. Um, I have a couple. I founded a company called Sun People Productions. Uh, the company primarily is uh, about creating content for underrepresented groups, ethnic people. Um, within the United States, outside of the United States. Uh, we film commercials, we film podcasts, we create content essentially to help give voices to people who don't necessarily have a voice within this uh, new America, quote unquote. And uh, I've had the company since 2019. We're active uh, internationally creating content from Colombia all the way to Brazil, Ooh. to Cameroon, you know, and, and it's just like sharing um, ethnic voices, sharing uh, another side of this American experience. No, that's amazing, you know, and, you know, I kind of randomly, I was like, you know, let me do a little bit of research before we get on, and I noticed like Palenque, right? And for those of you guys that don't know, Palenque is like um, one of the black communities that is in um, Colombia, because I lived in Colombia for five years. Amazing. And so, Amazing. yeah, I, um, you know, that's where I met my wife. That's where my daughter was born. Um, you know, I'm super like tight with my in-laws. So, you know, it's a, it's been a, a hearty time, but, um, you know, obviously one of the underrepresented groups is, um, you know, obviously the black community and this is across Latin America, you know, most of them have like a specific part of the country where they, um, where they kind of like, where there's a large population of blacks, right? And that's, you know, Nicaragua, Peru, Colombia, you know, for example, you know, there's a pretty large black population, you know, Afro-Colombian population in Valle del Cauca. And then you have Chocó, which is like really kind of like, you know, where the, I would say the, the largest, I guess, from my understanding, um, population of, you know, African descendants, you know, African, Afro-Colombians, right, are um, kind of based in Colombia, you know, and one of the things about it is that, you know, most of these communities, you know, as you said, are underrepresented, underrepresented, underfunded, you know, just kind of, um, you know, especially in Colombia with, you know, these land, um, you know, disputes with these, you know, large companies that they kind of like come in and then they take the land you know, and for the um, the social leaders that stand up for, you know, what's right, you know, they just kind of like wipe them out, you know, in Choco and, you know, that area of Colombia is, you know, always on the news about, you know, some new social leader has died. So, you know, it's a very um, kind of tumultuous, kind of like messed up um, area as well. You know, obviously they have, um, you know, there are a lot of illicit activities going on in these areas. And so, you know, they're never really able to kind of take off um, economically either. So it's a very interesting situation. Have you heard anything about that? I, I'm actually very, uh, very aware of the situation going on. 
Um, I would say this last year when I was in Colombia, uh, I spent some time in Cartagena. Typically, I've been going to Colombia for like 15 years. Um, oh, so wow. I've gotten, so, man, I'm ingrained in terms of like a specific community. So in terms of like seeing the change and seeing like this wave of Americans, I, I'm using the term American just to be able to not, not discounting mm -hmm. myself, I'm saying this wave of foreigners coming in where at first you had these like immaculate beaches with no one there and it's just like tropical people and then now it's like disneyland where all of these people are coming you have spirit flights bringing them in and you know i'm, I'm just I, I like to catalog culture catalog things about a community and i did an interview with uh, a professor at the university of cartagena and Ooh. we spoke about uh we spoke about um the current situation and how gentrification is affecting uh, that city specifically. And, yep. you know, at first I thought it was going to be a lighthearted conversation, but we, he went in depth on how his community had changed, how all of these foreigners had come in, the prices had gone up, like how yep. the very place we were sitting inside, which was a historically African-American owned um, hotel, no longer was that at any point. And after the interview was over, like I say, an hour later, he texts me, and he's like, listen, please don't put out what I what I said on camera. Um, you know, it's very dangerous for me. And I was yeah, like, Yeah, man, oh, that's the thing, is that they what? they will oh. knock you off. Like it they they play no freaking games. Let me tell you that right now. Like, I mean, it's it's so dangerous that if you stand up for yourself, you will get knocked off. And like I said, this is not a game, you know, like it's very dangerous for social leaders that stand up for what is right you know whether it's in Cartagena and Choco and you know by the way like you know obviously for the people that don't know Choco is like a department of Colombia it's kind of like a state right you know we have Tennessee Georgia New Mexico right they kind of like split it into that's kind of how they organize themselves um you know we call them like departments so it's basically kind of like uh, not really the size of a state right but you know kind of just the way that they kind of organize their um themselves Right. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of different like cities and towns within Choco, basically. But, you know, like I said, it's a very um, dangerous situation. You know, a lot of people are very worried about their loved ones that, you know, do want to stand up for what's right, but they can't necessarily. You know, there are a lot of kind of conflicting interests, whether it's the guerrilla, you know, the FARC or the ELN or, you know, these other kind of, um, you know, paramilitary groups or it's the government. Right. Or it's the the international companies. Right. That, you know, have these vetted interests and, you know, can basically, you know, hire whoever, you know, to kind of take care of the problem. Right. That kind of like pops yeah. up. So it's um it's very, you know, a very um, kind of messed up situation. But, um, yeah, kind of what are your what are your thoughts? You know, would there um, do you think that there is a, you know, anything that they can do as a community? um you know you know kind of like looking at the future what is the what's the kind of vibe that you're getting at least um from what i've seen again i specifically when i'm in uh, colombia i'm mostly around the playa blanca area and sometimes i go to yep. palenque around both of those communities i see i think that with without um adequate education it's going to be very difficult and i think that the fact that most people don't have access to you know above subsistence education or above subsistence 
opportunity. It's going to be very difficult to combat the onslaught of capitalism, the onslaught of un unbridled capitalism. Let me let me say that because there's, there's a level of it which I think is like beneficial. But um, I feel that uh, without organizations setting up programs or, or helping community groups teach skills which are above opening up little bars and opening up little restaurants that you know yep. that that's the only way essentially to help the people i think it's just education and in time i wouldn't necessarily say armed struggle for for that place because i don't think columbia specifically needs any more of that but i feel that yeah. from people protesting i don't necessarily even believe Again, I'm saying this from a foreigner standpoint that um, it would do as much good as uh, the economic might of new new opportunities would do. Like you have to combat, you know, this unbridled capitalism with opportunity and, and capitalism in itself. Teaching people uh, how to use the internet, teaching people how to use these computer technologies, and and trying to get people to shift their way of thinking because most people, uh, specifically outside of, I'm just speaking about coastal Colombia, do yep. subsistence living, catering to tourists in the legal sector, or um, yep. you know just scraping by, or some. And, exactly. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult for people to be able to make somewhat of a living wage when you're making nine to fourteen dollars at most a day. So I think that uh, the best thing to do is for aid groups or individual people, former Colombians, Colombians living in the States, people abroad to essentially invest in education, invest in, hey, we're going to do a workshop on coding, finding us, finding teachers in Bogota who are willing to travel to these places and investing in them and investing that kind of infrastructure into these places versus, you know, sending bags of shoes or sending uh, 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 care care packages back back to the country. I don't think that in the long term is going to be beneficial. I've seen the same thing in Haiti, where that's just uh, fostering a, a community of of of, uh, of I don't want to say beggars, but fostering a community of people who aren't necessarily willing to do for themselves. Whereas if you plant the seed by providing opportunity and education it's going to do wonders for that community because people begin to think differently and look at their their opportunities differently versus, hey, I'm going to go work in tourism versus, okay, I want to work in tourism, but how about I start this digital business which caters? What if I use cryptocurrency? I remember just casually when I was um, when I was in Colombia last, I spoke with a couple people and I I tried to teach people how to use cryptocurrency. I tried to teach people um, specifically how it works because most people are aware of PayPal. And I'm like, okay, it's a very similar concept to PayPal, you know, except this would be beneficial. I don't want to give away the secret sauce, but I feel that there's such a big community of global uh, tech professionals working now all over the world because I encountered them all over that I believe that the next, the next wave or people investing in that particular market would be doing a disservice to themselves and their companies if they don't provide opportunities to accept cryptocurrency, accept these other forms of of, of capital. Uh, you know, most even it's it's so hard to find ATMs that I'm like, this is a gold mine waiting to happen. As long as people are willing to implement it, you get just a hundred people willing to do that to their businesses, and you just watch the revolution take off. That's true. The thing, you know, the thing is that, you know, and I, um, whenever I wanted to come back to the States, because, you know, before, so 
I originally went to Columbia in 2016 working with the Peace Corps, right? I was a Peace Corps volunteer for two years. Yeah. I um, finished my service, came back to the States for six months, got married, you know, um, engaged, and then I got married. Then I moved back to Columbia for, you know, two, two and a half more years. Um, you know, pandemic hit, whatever, right? Yeah. But, you know, whenever I was on the way back, I started to, um, you know, whenever I was applying for jobs and things, I, you know, I started to look into these different aid organizations. Um, I feel like if there was an organization that I could believe in as far as aid goes, right? Because, you know, there are a lot of different, you know, kind of motivations and grants and, you know, kind of, um, I won't say illicit, but, you know, kind of interesting things that go on. I would. You know, with I these would say aid, yeah, um, you know, aid organizations. And so, you know, I started to research some of them. And, you know, whenever, if you ever write, if you ever read a write up from any or aid organization, they make it sound like that country, those people, whatever, you know, um, place that they're in needed them and that they wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Now, is that true? To a certain extent, yes, but it, you know, it sounds a little bit like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, you know, let me make it sound like I need this, you know, this grant money or, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? I mean, that's how it kind of come off, came off to me to a certain extent, you know what I mean? And I do understand that you have to, you know, let um, kind of the, the, the common man kind of know how these things work, you know, that you work with a community and whatnot. But at the same time, I think that, you know, um, most of these organizations want to help, right? They really do, like, you know, in their heart. But at the same time, you don't want to help them so much that they're going to become your competition. You know what I mean? And I think that that is kind of like a um, an issue with aid, right? You know, kind of how that's much are we helping you? That, that's a very interesting way to look at it because I, I think that um, that actually could be possibly part of the reason why uh, some of these organizations don't necessarily move into that, into the, to the technology sector as, as much more so as like the, the small scale subsistence businesses. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like I remember because um, I was in Haiti about four months ago. And one thing yeah. I noticed and I saw among uh, most of the aid groups or aid organizations which had been in the country is they would set up these programs and then they would fail after four or five months. And, and the workers on the ground knew what was happening, but the higher command, the people who actually ran these organizations in the States didn't understand that the reason these organizations weren't working was because the locals on the ground had no ownership, had no real control. And there was an even a counter organization it was even a, a, a culture of okay aid workers are coming so there's this guy who's going to defraud the aid agency because this is what he always does or these group of people always do this they're going to move the chairs around take this capital they know exactly what policies are in place to meet that and then they get the money oh. and they split it with their relatives and that's that's another culture which comes with these aid organizations being ingrained where it's it like does. okay it does. They know they know the they know the the, the the tenants and they know the specifics of these organizations where it's like, okay, we'll meet this, this, and this, and this. They they might as well have the charters of, of half of these companies. And and it's crazy how they, they can work the system and make capital and then when everything is said and done, you wonder why your fishery isn't functioning. And it's crazy. 
No, man. The thing is that, you know, like I said, I, I mean, there's a, you know, especially, I feel, I mean, I don't know, you know, especially with aid organizations, you know, kind of in this, you know, foreign aid that the states give, which is gives to these countries. And it's, I mean, it's very interesting, even during COVID, like, you know, the fact that they shipped off millions of, you know, vaccines, you know, and obviously that's all over the news. We're going, you know, because I mean, I was in Colombia when that stuff was happening. They were shipping them there and then, you know, it would be all over the news. The United States is going to send us a million vaccines. Yay. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I mean, like, hey, you know, that's great. But like, I mean, it's a great thing that they did that with the vaccines, but still it's pushing the narrative that these countries need us, you know, and, you know, I said a little bit of it, you know, international affairs when I was in college. And so that's what I majored in. But, you know, one of the things that is argued about all the time is, you know, what's the best for these countries slash continents, right? Should Latin America rely on Latin America? You know, should Africa rely on Africa? Should Asia rely on Asia instead of this kind of, you know, global market, global things, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, there's always going to be someone that is, I mean, you know, in these places that have, and to be completely honest with you, I feel like every country has a lot of corruption, right? I just think that some maybe hide it a little bit better, you know, especially now that, you know, there are a lot of, you know, documentaries and truths coming out about, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, the yeah. this uh, Madoff character that was, you know, another like Wolf of Wall Street or whatever, and kind of the, the shady businesses and the, you know, the, the, it's honestly corruption, right? But we don't have that. Um, the normal American doesn't think that America's corrupt. They just don't. That's right. True. Because That's we, true. we don't, we don't, you know, even me, you know what I mean? Like, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the States is as corrupt as, or, you know, as capable of, you know, whatever, right. Um, whether it's corruption or crime or, you know, whatever, right. As a third world country. And I hate that concept, right? Um, because it gives a um, a bad rap to these countries that many times have been screwed over by the most powerful ones, right? And then they're like, you know, they take everything from them and then it's kind of like, hey, why aren't you doing well? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, get it's, up on your feet. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? And it's like, you can't do it that fast. You know, whenever I travel to Colombia, you know, kind of, um, think that it's kind of like stepping back in a time machine, right? Because obviously, you know, there are these areas that, you know, have these techno technological advances and stuff. But I mean, you know, here in the States, we're, it's different, you know, um, you know, we're just ahead, you know what I mean? Um, you know, whether it's kind of the way that you think, you know, whether, um, culturally as well, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, human rights or, you know, economically, financially, you know, for example, now a lot of people are, you know, kind of starting to think of investing, right? Because, you know, if you have yeah. a little bit more than you can invest, right? But, you know, I mean, or for example, here in the States, if you, if I'm a, a, um, an engineer, right? And I want to become a teacher, I can do that or vice versa, yeah. you know, or, you know, if I want to transition from teaching into something that pays more, I can do that, right? But, you know, for example, yeah. in, you know, in these countries, if you get a job, you keep it. Why? Because more than likely, it's very hard to get another one, right? Especially 
you know, depending on the city that you're in, because I live there, I know, you know, what it's like to live in a city where there aren't many jobs, right? And me, as an American, you know, as somebody from the States, um, you know, kind of like fighting as well, kind of in that like rat race, you know what I mean? To find these, um, you know, these professional jobs that many times aren't existing, you know? So people will graduate from college and then they're selling freaking empanadas or, yeah, you know, doing yeah. something that has nothing to do with what they study because that's just what's freaking available, you know? I mean, it's not, um, you know, and I don't know when that would happen there, you know? And I don't even know if, you know, if there's a, I mean, I think that there are a, there are a lot of opportunities, but at the same time, it depends where you are, you know, because a lot of most people, they kind of just, you know, put their roots down and they just stay there, you know, yeah. because I mean, it's unfeasible to move, especially whenever you have kids and, you know, I mean, family and family is like, you know, a super big thing. Um, I mean, here in the States too, but right, like there, it's even more so. Um, depending on where you are in the country, I feel like, you know, costeños are a lot more, um, I feel like, or, you know, family oriented, like to the point of, you know, like we have to be, you know, at home, you know, on said date, you know, because of a, a festival or, you know, some kind of tradition or, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? You want to pass those moments with family, if at all possible, you know what I mean? No, absolutely. I think that the the culture of family plays a plays a big role, a key role in terms of of uh, the way people behave, uh, specifically Costiano people in uh, in in Colombia. But I do believe that um, with that, it's just it's going to take a, a seismic mentality change because you can open the door for Which people. But yep. It's very tough. It's like th there's a nice hierarchy pyramid where people at this particular level are subsistence, where it's just, okay, how do I make it through next week? How do I make it through next week? And it's like yeah. endemic to the cult, the entire society. And to be able to rise above that is just gonna take education because aside from that, I don't wanna say cast the entire generation aside, but I'd say focus on teaching people about all of this new technology, AI, teaching people about cryptocurrency, teaching people about different ways of doing business. You don't have to open a bar or a nightclub or sell empanadas or go to the water or do sex tourism or do all this other nonsense. There's like ways you can make capital. And obviously I'm saying this from a place of privilege sitting here, you know, Facts. That's very but, true. It's, but yeah, at the same us, time, yes. I want to yes. hold that. I want to make sure, you know, yeah. but, but, but I, there's other ways if people are willing to just like, um, give other things a try. And and I think that it's a responsibility for pe uh, us people who like love Colombia, love the culture, love the people there um, to, to, to either invest or start opportunities to, to help people in a genuous way, in, in, a, in a more thought out way, I would say. No, yes. You know, I mean, you know, as a volunteer, you know, in the Peace Corps, you you know, one of the things that I like about it is that you can really see why, not necessarily why things are the way they are, but you get to understand the mentality of people that live in these countries. You know what I mean? And, you know, like you said, you know, most of the time, um, to a certain extent, right, um, you know, even professionals, right, it's just, you know, kind of like a, I won't say subsistence living, right, but there isn't any you know, talks about, you know, okay, I'm investing here, right? Because yeah. most people, unless you're like in the mining industry, 
right? And you're away from your family a lot of the time, right? And just making huge bucks. Yeah. Um, you know, because I mean, that's one of the most, you know, one of the most reveled, I guess you could say, or one of the one of the highest paying jobs in the country is mining, right? Um, but you know, those miners, they don't, you know, they're not around their family. You know, there's a lot of um, interesting things that kind of happen. You know what I mean? Um, with their, you know, between them and their spouses. But you know, we won't get into that. But um, you know, it's just that there aren't, there isn't enough consistent income, right? To kind of like think about what comes next or, you know, what am I going to do now? My wife's family is 98% like teachers, right? And so, you know, teaching is one of the best, most consistent jobs in the country, right? However, you know, for example, here, if I want to go to a school in Georgia, right? be a teacher, I can apply, get hired, whatever, right? There, it doesn't necessarily work like that. You know, there's really like two kind of ways that it can work off of merit or off of like recommendations slash um, you're appointed, right? So, you know, if you get a certification in a certain, um, you know, department, for example, let's say Atlantico, right? You know, where Barranquilla is, you know, the capital of the the Atlantico, right? So then, the, I think it's the governor or the mayor or whatever, right, kind of has to pick teachers, like handpick them of where they're going to go in that department, right? And obviously, if you have somebody that's either in the mayor's office or kind of knows the governor or whatever, right, then you can kind of have your pick of where you want to be, right? And so, you know, there's also this kind of political game of, okay, let me align myself with so-and-so that's a politician so that they can do me a favor, you know what I mean? And get me in the school that I want to be in. Or, okay, my uncle knows him, right? He's on his, you know, political party or, you know, or um, one of the other things that I heard is that, you know, if you go to go, go to door to door during their, you know, political campaign, then they'll, you know, have a stop, you know, or a job during their, um, you know, during their like reign as politicians. I mean, it gets very meticulous, very like intricate, you know, um, these relationships, you know, and I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, basically whenever you get to, if you want to get somewhere, you basically most of the time have to align yourself with some kind of politician, right? Um, I mean, you know, and that's just how most people do it, you know, and that's just, kind of how things work in a different in a different light um there you know um, whether it's a favor yeah. whether it's yeah. a job or you know um okay i have this problem let me you know contact so and so you know because i've talked to the professionals there and they're they're like you know during university you always get you a lawyer and a doctor you know and maybe like you know other people that are you know, well connected but still like you know you always want to have a lawyer friend and you always want to have a doctor friend right? You know, for, you know, whatever trouble you might get into or, you know, any favors that you might need. Um, you know, and honestly, it's not, you know, not a bad thing to have as a lawyer friend, a doctor friend. And, you know, I mean, I can't think of anybody else, but right now, but I mean, you know, those are kind of the, kind of the way that the thought process works as far as to a certain extent, right? You know, not a hundred percent all the time, but, um, 
you know, it's very interesting kind of the way that, you know, the way that things are done, because it's honestly completely different than here in the States, you know, supposedly, yeah. I I, I have to disagree with that. You know, I think okay. in terms of like the culture of nepotism, it, it it's a lot stronger in Colombia, but I mean, you know, I grew up in a city like Chicago. I grew up in Chicago and that city itself, um, it's 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 very similar in terms of with the trade unions. You have to know someone. You have to be related to someone mm -hmm. else who, who is kind of in. You don't just apply for these kind of roles. So that I would say is like some somewhat similar to the situation in Colombia. Mm -hmm. The way they di diverge is that, you know, I think it's a lot more uh, blatant in Colombia, and that you yes that you, you see it face you see it for what it is. You know, you can't exactly. you can't escape it. That that's where I think that the. The, the difference uh, really lies. But, you know, it, it's just a tough situation. Um, I, I don't know if you're doing any business in the, the, the country right now, but I mean, it's 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 really about like changing that mentality. I I did a little bit of work for a hotel um, in Cartagena and I had just, I, I, I built their website. I, I upgraded their website. Um, one of the services I was offering, um, I pretty much translated their page. Uh, from English to French, and I, you know, help them set up a system for people to uh, uh, pretty much check out because they couldn't essentially check out online. And I did this for this one uh, hotel, and that was like my in to meet other hoteliers, meet other people within the community. Yep. And it's similar, similar situation where it's like you have to give a little to get a little to kind of get along, and it's a very slow process. But once a few yep. people vouch for you. Then it's like okay, yes, that's very you know, you, you very break true. that tourism wall. You break the wall of just being yep. like, because they look at you as a tourist and you're just there. And you're okay, yeah, haha, -ha, happy times, Colombia. But then when you break that wall of familiarity, it's like okay, now I can, now I can look at you and, and we can do something in terms of the financial, financial space. Yes, no, that's very interesting. And while we're talking about financial spaces. Um, I kind of wanted to talk to you about um, investing in real estate. Um, you know, what has been your experience um, either here or abroad? Well, I, at the moment, I'm only doing domestic, but I plan to be international, God willing, uh, by next year. Uh, I'm originally from Cameroon, which is a Central African country. So I've, I've always had like a, an, 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 an attraction, uh, I'm sorry, an, not attraction, but I've always been very close to my roots and very close to where I come from. And, and just this whole global diaspora. And one of the things I've seen is places where I would visit in my 20s, I'm about to be 40 now, places I would visit in my 20s, they have become hotspots all over the world. These like yep. zones where it was like, oh, this is like a hidden area in this particular country or a hidden little gem of, of of this particular city. Now all of a sudden I go back or I look at things online and all this they're they're blown up, you know. I see it all over the world where it's like, wow, these like quote unquote, they could be risky, dangerous areas. For instance, you go to Hackney in, in London and if it was like 20 years ago, that was the ghetto or quote unquote that you shouldn't go to Hackney. Yep. Now Hackney is like urban sprawl. It's full of hipsters. It's like niche. It's rich. Same thing in Cartagena. You go to Playa Blanca 20 years ago, it was empty. Now it's full of hotels. It's full of like people, yeah, like businesses. It's the same thing. And for, for, for real estate investing, I think that being an artist, 
is a benefit that you know you can see these things you can go into a community and you can say okay wow this is quote unquote the ghetto this is quote unquote a somewhat impoverished area but look at that over there look at that artwork which they put up there look at this you go into an area you support the artists by either helping out in the community center by either uh by helping out i mean donating to a community center um or or just like fostering a space for them like putting up uh, a basketball court or just helping helping a group of creatives create or at yep. least if you're the real if you're we're talking in terms of real estate you rent out and you foster an environment where artistic people can thrive and the money will come it's just a matter of yeah. time because the way this the way i believe it works is artists move into an area once artists have moved into the area they make it pro they make it popular they make it cool artists move into a dangerous air dangerous area they make it cool they make it a little bit risque and that's what the allure and the attraction for the average investor would be and then from there after the average investor you get the yuppie the ultra rich people who come in and say wow oh yeah this place used to be risque this place used to be quote unquote dangerous but we can do this with it. And then the corporations are in there and the process begins itself all over again. As an investor, okay. I think that um, you just have to look at the pattern and see in what, what stage of development an area is in. Like I'm currently now in the city of Chicago, for instance. And if you look at a map, you look at Zillow and you see the entire okay. city and you'll see million dollar homes on the north side and in the south side, it's just like, you know, there's really very few properties which are doing well but then you have a sliver which is heading towards the airport which is like kind of um in the turnaround for me personally as an investor i would go to the area which is sort of in the turnaround because it's close to the multi-million dollar homes and you're right next to the airport that's just some you know free free a free right. tidbit how i look free at game. yeah yeah because i mean it's like you know i mean i don't know what how do you think that that, I mean, you know, investing and things like that, at what point does it become like gentrification or, you know, kind of when we're, um, you know, kind of starting to, I guess, take away from the, that specific community? I think it's all gentrification. It's all gentrification. I, I think that even even in what I do, even in myself and what I'm starting to do, it's gentrification. It's just a matter of who's gentrifying. How are you making mm. this neighbor? Are you going to, is it racially gonna be based on the same set of guidelines which were there before? Or are you at least gonna gentrify it to be more inclusive and make sure that anything that you own in the property is inclusive and have that, rep and have that represented? I think that's the difference where it's like before, the racial component or the economic component was there where it was like, okay, if we're gonna gentrify this place, it's gonna be all suburban, white, yuppie, this and that. Gentrification is not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. I mean, you, you're really helping to clean up and, and make these areas which are impoverished, um, a better, more habitable place for people to live. It's just a matter of not doing it all at once or not displacing people without compensation. If you displace people, there should be some sort of fair compensation. I'm all for gentrification. I, I, I believe it. I believe that it could be a good thing. I believe that people could also counter counter attack, counterbalance gentrification if they don't necessarily want to. If you look at the Chinese community in America, 
and you look at areas like a, a Chinatown, for instance, the way they fight gentrification is, okay, when a building becomes available and people want to rent it, the first thing it goes out is it goes out in the Cantonese newspaper or goes out in the Mandarin newspaper. And that's where the ads are for the available property. That's where it starts. So people see that within their community first, within their community, either in Hong Kong or in Beijing or, 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 or you know, in Taiwan, and they see that first. So they get first access to the real estate before it hits the open market. And that's the yeah. way communities can protect themselves. Now, that would mean starting some kind of network. Like if we're talking about the African-American community, it would mean that people who actually own these properties who were African-American or who were just minorities in general, would begin by you know offering up uh first 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 right of refusal or first uh first look to people within their own community starting at the ground roots grassroots in mosques in churches offering up your real estate there first before you take it out to the wider market because you because you know people can still afford it we have the luxury of, of technology now i was actually dealing with this uh real estate investor on on this property i was looking at purchasing and I was just surprised, like this is middle of America and middle of nowhere. And the gentleman owned a hundred and he owned a lot of property and he was from India. And uh -huh. he never he probably never stepped foot inside of any of the homes which he owned. But there's just a, a wave where you can counter balance that by first off, before all of these properties list the MLS hit hit the MLS, you start off locally, you start off gradually, you build from there, and then you can expand and, and offer it to the free market. That's, I mean, I, I don't think that's like a too much, I don't think it's very difficult for someone in a, in a, in a position of, 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 uh, of an owner to do. And I think that's more yeah, what awareness should be brought. Like, hey, if we're gonna sell this and we need this amount of money for it, let's at least market it targeting to this community first. At least that way we've done, you can sell it to whoever you want, but at least that way you've done your best or you've done, you've made some effort to kind of rectify gentrification. And I think that's the best way to go about it. Look for people in your community first. If they're not willing to pay your price, then look outward. But if we don't address that, then, you know, it is what it is. No, and I, I love that explanation. You know, I mean, the thing is that you have to do something. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, and to be honest with you, I feel like there aren't a lot, a lot, a lot of options of how to clean up an area or, you know, to make it better or, you know, especially when we talk about growth, right. And investing, you know, I mean, I feel like investing is also kind of like, um, the stock market to a certain extent, it's all about perspective, right. You know, you have to kind of like, you know, what is the general perspective of said stop, right. You know, if everybody's pulling out, I'm going to pull out too. Right. But if, if everybody's kind of, you know, investing and kind of putting in, then hmm, maybe I should too as well. I should as well, right? And I think that that also comes with like a, um, how an area is perceived. You know, it can't be, you know, a, a definite risk or a definite loss, right? And then with that, there have to be changes to that area, you know, whether it's um, visually, you know, culturally, right? There has to be something attractive there for investors to want to invest. That's just how the game is played, you know? But but it's, I, you can change the makeup of a community. And as an investor, I think it's one of the most rewarding things to see 
is when you have a, a property or you have like you you know what it was before you actually moved into an area or you know what it was before you actually got a building and now you see it alive with people and a different subsect of people who are like making their lives in this space and i think that you know any investor on that level anyone who uh is is doing uh bigger national nationwide investing there's 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 so many things that you can do in order to help out these communities and also to make a difference and still meet your bottom line i don't want to be all like you can change a community you can change a community by partnering with people like-minded people in the community and purchasing homes and helping to uh to to bring about a change like i i, I see it done gradually in the south side of chicago and uh in the area of uh, inglewood which is uh right now it's, it's the real estate is, is is like very low within the city within that particular city it's like you could buy a home for 70 80 thousand dollars there versus you go 20 blocks up and the prices start at about half a million dollars. And so an area yeah. like that would be uh, a great area to invest in, but you also have to know it's gonna take like 10 years of you fostering that, of you doing things like, um, like one of the things I was reading that investors would do was create free book drops, you know? That's like yeah. one of the key, that's one of the key marks of a, of a good neighborhood. If you go there and you see a free book giveaway, one of those homes in the street, you see that you're like okay this is something which you know which would attract people to want to live there setting that up putting up speed bumps in an area increasing the lighting these are things which can help to bring about and foster an environment you know actively yep. supporting perspective police, yes. police watch and hoa if they happen to have an hoa actively being involved in the community doing something for the children and then publicizing it that is stuff which can actually bring about a growth and let me let me let me not say i'm not on that level i'm not on that level as of yet but you know as i gradually move in my real estate career i'm just i'm just saying that these are things which are um which i think would really help to change uh domestically and and, and also internationally same same principles apply whether it's here or in colombia no that's very interesting you know i mean You had mentioned an HOA. I mean, that is a very, um, you know, interesting sector. The Homeowners Association, for you, those of you guys that don't know, basically they're kind of in charge of um, the community, you know, how it looks, how it feels, what the perspective is, you know, and kind of the, the you know, and kind of the, um, the way that it's perceived to outsiders, obviously to foster and maintain kind of you know an, an upkeep of the of the neighborhood you know there are i feel like there are different levels of homeowners associations you know i've heard good things i well i mean i guess i haven't heard very many good things about hoas but um you know i think that the idea is good that you know they just want to upkeep the the um the neighborhood you know even though they might you know get on you about you know your grass or you know the tent on your windows of your house or you know whatever right um I think the idea of an HOA is great. Um, and it, I think that it definitely, you know, helps to keep things at a standard, you know? Um, you know, and honestly, like, um, when you want to, you know, whenever there's a high standard, there does have to be kind of a high, um, an authority, right? That does have some power over things, even though, you know, obviously like all things, um, that can kind of get out of, out of hand sometimes. 
Um, and, you know, people will, may have a problem with it. But I think that the idea at the heart of it is a good thing. Um, another thing that I kind of wanted to talk to you about is that I know. So you said that you've been to, you know, your from Cameroon, United States. Um, you know, you've been to Colombia. You've been to Brazil. You've been to Africa. Um, a little bit later, I'd like to talk about Carnaval. But um, oh, what is so your... Many, yeah. Actually, before we go any further about Carnaval, that's another yeah. thing which I about Colombia. Colombia. Yeah. Uh, this is another free tidbit for anyone who's looking to in, to invest. The fact that that country has over five different celebrations similar to Carnival, and no one is investing, and no one has yes. that. So this is free game I'm giving. If any, like if anyone who's connected to the culture who is um, able to meander and maneuver, that's a multi-million dollar idea right there because there's nothing for people who want to do a carnival tour, all five, for the English-speaking world, for the French-speaking world. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. That's so true. No, bro. Hey, bro. That's so freaking true. It's so true. Like, no, that's facts. You know what I'm saying? Because it's on the tourists to set themselves up for success. And specifically, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I have family or, you know, um, a host family that, you know, has become my family now in Santo Tomas. And if you guys don't know anything about Santo Tomas, that's kind of like the, um, Barranquilla is obviously number one, right? You know, like number yeah, one, yeah. Carnival Central, right? Yeah, but, the real one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. But the, I would say the second best around the, in, in, in friggin' Atlantico, which is, you know, the, the biggest hub of Carnival that there is. From yeah, my perspective, because honestly, I feel like you know it, it's it's a it's a coastal thing, you know. Like for example, Cartagena has a huge carnival celebration, but they say that the best one, like the number one, the most well organized, whatever, um, is in Barranquilla, right? But I would say that the second true. best is Santo Tomas, which is like maybe 30, 35 minutes outside of Arranquilla, and it's a very small town. But, I mean, yeah. like, no, what you say is very true, you know, but at the same time, it's upon the tourists to kind of figure figure things out for themselves, you know, based on maybe a blog or, you know, a post or, you know, something. A million kinda, dollar idea. Uh, if yeah. there's a company out there which has, like, I, I don't have the infrastructure or the financial capability to do, but I look at that as, like, the next thing, it's the next stage in development of that place. From everything I've seen, from empty beaches to Arnold Schwarzenegger buying something off the island to people. I know like a guy who owns an island in uh, off of Isla de, de, de Los Indios there. Mm -hmm. And he was a guy who retired from Canada, bought this island, and he set it across the, the, um, the directly from the hard rock. They have a hard rock there now. It's just the next Oh, yeah, step. yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. And it's right in the friggin' walled city. And to be honest, it made me mad, but, you know, I live here in Miami, and a lot of my coworkers were going to Cartagena. I was like, why the hell are y'all going to Cartagena? You know what I mean? But at the same time, like, I feel like, honestly, Cartagena is the most well-known coastal city to a certain extent, Yeah. right? You know, you have the beach, you have the tourism. I mean, Santa Marta as well, but I don't know why, but I feel like Cartagena yeah. is just more well-known or it's more easily accessible. And I think that actually there are direct flights from Miami to Cartagena. Maybe that's what it is. 
And but, New York. Um, yes. And so, you know, I mean, that's great. But, um, you know, as far as Carnaval goes, and by the way, people, Colombia is a very tourist-friendly place. They do not bother you at all. They love that you come to learn about, you know, Colombia or, you know, that you ask questions about the culture and stuff like that. Like, you know, the I'll tell you this whole story. The only time that I had an experience where I was uncomfortable, like, for being black, was in Santa Marta. Now, however, I'll give you a little, little backstory. I went to a party that, you know, one of my friends had been invited to. They were like, you know, it was me and two other black guys. Um, you know, I was obviously working with the Peace Corps. There was another guy that was working for Heart for Change. And then, you know, he had a buddy that was visiting. Right. So we all go to this party. This girl that was black from France, you know, kind of comes up to us because, you know, there was food, um, you know, and obviously like any friggin party. Right. You know, you kind of go in, you know, try the food. She's like, hey, you guys aren't going to eat all the fall, all like eat all the food, are you? I was like, oh, my God, that is so friggin like stereotypical. You know, the black dudes just come in and eat everything up. Right. It was kind of funny. But at the same time, I was like, dang, that's literally only the first time and only time that I was like kind of uncomfortable like as a like as a black dude right and I thought it was kind of interesting that it was like that's all I gotta say you know, somebody that was black from France I was like oh my god black women from France believe me uh yeah I know hopefully they get to see this, <laughs> see this. Yeah. yeah that's funny no I mean you know because and then, you know, what she said after that was like, you know how black people are. I was like, damn. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, it's like, I mean, okay, like, you know, I guess stereotypically, you know, they see stuff on the news. But, you know, I mean, that was literally the only time that I felt uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? And I've been in, I don't need an unlimited amount of, you know, situations, being the new black guy that, you know, I could have felt uncomfortable. But I was welcomed, you know, kind of made to be to be felt at home. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was at home. And that's one of the things that, you know, I wish that, I guess, people knew about Colombia, because I feel like there are a yeah. lot of neg negative stereotypes about the country in general. Like, There's so many negative stereotypes that, yes, even to, com to combat half of that, like, to be honest, when I'm there, I try to avoid tourists at all costs. Like, I talk about Cartagena a lot, because that was, like, my first in point into into the country but realistically if i'm in country i'm in barranquilla like i don't even like to be around like a place where you have all of these tourists because of what comes with them you know that whole nightlife party culture scene it's cool but you can experience that without necessarily um just being in like disney world with all of these people who are coming it's like all right that's cool you know I, I it prefer changes barranquilla. the vibe it changes the experience it changes how people will treat you to a certain extent. I don't even like to hear English, man. I don't like to be around places. Oh, where I yes. Yep. I'm like, okay, yep. I not to be in a, uh, a, a bit elitist with it. It's just that I, it's like I come here for this experience, this food, this culture, all of this. And then you come and you bring New York with you. And I'm like, oh, my God, man. I just, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be around that. Oh, yes. Wanna, yes. You know? And then, you know, the thing is that, you know, it's not very hard to, especially if you go to freaking Pueblo. There's not going to be any other American yeah. people there. Not, yeah. you know, not more than yeah. likely. Like, you know what I mean? There is, yeah. I mean, it's so nice to feel like you're the only one 
in a place from a certain country. You know what I mean? That's one of the things that I love about, you know, Colombia is that it's not very hard to escape, you know, the tourists, especially, if, for example, in Cartagena, you know, the, no the north side is where, like, you know, uh, Boca Grande, uh, you know, Boca Grande, all, you know yeah. the Walled City, and friggin', you know, Manga, like these kind of rich places, you know, because I used to teach at a, at a private school in Cartagena, and, you know, a lot of our kids would, li you know, lived in where people make money live. You know, Manga, Boca Grande, and like that, you know, that little, like, peninsula area, I guess you could call it, which is the, like, tourist area and which looks the best, to be honest. Yeah. Right? Now, if you go to the south side, there's no, I'm not going to say there's no, but, you know, there aren't many tourists there, right? Because it's the more no. underdeveloped, more, like, authentic Cartagena, you know, that has, you know, El Mercado, right? You know, freaking... Um, Maltos or ever going every which way, you know, all yeah. on the sidewalks. You know what I mean? Like that good, nice, um, freaking authentic <laughs> feel. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Like yeah. you know. And honestly, whenever I was like, you know, looking into doing a study abroad, a lot of people go to like Spain or freaking London or something like that. I'm like, hell no. I want to go to a legit Latin American country where they speak Spanish and to have that, you know, host family experience. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. I was like, yeah, I, I want something yeah. that's not, you know, there'll be people that will come back with, you know, the, uh, I said, the little, like, you know, the, the list that the, 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 the Spaniards put on their Spanish, right? And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I want to, like, legit experience. So I freaking went to, like, Nicaragua, right? To get, like, a, mm -hmm. a different kind of experience. And it was, I'm so glad that I did, right? How was Nicaragua? Man, um, I was just there for six months, but no, I I loved and I really honestly enjoyed my time in the country. It was a great time, you know. Um, I was going ham because you know whenever I was given a refund, right? You know, you get your normal refund for college, which is you know three to four k. And man, I was going ham. I got fat as hell. I gained like 20, 30 pounds. I did not care. I was eating out almost every day. This was like my first time away from home. Didn't have a freaking curfew. Oh man, I was doing stuff you shouldn't be doing. Like freaking Live coming back, you know, like, you know, late as hell, like 11, 12 and knocking on the door like, hey, let me in. That is not something you should be doing. You know what I'm saying? But, oh my God, I had too much fun. You know what I'm saying? Like, eating yeah. out every day, free, you know, partying a little bit, you know, not too much, but man, I went ham and I had so much fun doing it. You know, um, I feel like, you know, Nicaragua isn't, you know, even Managua because of the earthquake back in the eighties or seventies, eighties, maybe nineties, whatever. They had an earthquake, which knocked down a lot of their, um, you know, the, the infrastructure of the city, you know, and kind of kept it from growing. And so, you know, the maximum, I think, in Managua, whenever I was there, which was like in 2014, there was maybe like a three or four story building, right? You know, so it's not super, super, you know, overly developed. So it kind of yeah. has like a, yeah. a small town vibe, to be honest with you, you know, even in the country's capital. And then outside of that, it's very like, you know, Pueblo-ish, you know. But one of the things that I love about that country are the colonial towns, right? I mean, amazingly beautiful, 
you know, there are, I mean, there are some of them that have more tourists than others, but man, whenever you talk about beauty, oh man, Nicaragua is beautiful. Really? You know what I mean? Like, no, it, yes. You got to go like San Juan del Sur is like a surfing town. There's um, Leon. Obviously, you have Managua. Dude, there's so much that, um, like, so many, like, little jump off points. It's a vibe, bro. Like, on my list, I would I definitely. Yes, it was amazing. You know, and I honestly, like, I wish that I had spent more time there. Now, recently, they had a, um, I don't know if it was like, not like a revolution, I guess, but it was like, I would call it like a, more than a BLM level, like type of kind of protest in the country, yeah. right? Yeah. Where, you know, there were these like, you know, di disappearances. And one of the things that's very typical about, you know, Latin America, um, you know, if we get into like, you know, the school of the Americas, um, which was, you know, where a lot of their, um, the dictators were sent, you know, the generals, like the head honchos of the militaries of Latin America, a lot of those were sent to school of the Americas, whatever, that's a different story. But one of the biggest thing is the, um, you know, that they just kind of like, I don't want to say that they kidnap people, right? But people just like kind of fall off. They, they just literally just they kidnap people, right? They kidnap. Yeah, they kidnap. like, you know, I mean, it's, um, I mean, because I mean, like kidnapping is kind of like, okay, you might be held for ransom. These people are just like disappearing the face of the yard. Like there's no, yeah. you know, freaking, you don't know where they went. They're just gone, there's, right? I was, Which in, is, I was in Argentina. I was in Argentina for three months. And I remember that, um, no wait, I was in Argentina for five months. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. I was in Argentina for five months and I remember the the mother, the Mother's March where women of yep. people, were mothers who had had their children or, or someone in their family um, taken away by the Pinochet uh, regime, yep. I believe, were like mm -hmm. marching through the streets. And this was a, a, something I was surprised to see and realize like they literally just disappeared. And they know no one ever yes, knew what dude, happened. They are what freaking happened. gone. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like freaking um name on a t-shirt type stuff. Like yeah. and With it's no not body. even like, With oh, no they body. were killed. Like they're just freaking gone, like snatched. You know what I'm saying? And that's very typical across Latin America. You're just freaking gone. You know, it's not yeah. like I mean, you know, there's some shady stuff that happened, you know, for example, during the uh, BLM marches here in the States, and I was actually abroad for that. You know, and to be honest, like, I was like, you know, there was a time when I, I was messed up, you know, like in my like psychologically, because I felt like, you know, my people were like going to war. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a yeah. it was a, it was tough. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, I feel like it's not it's typical here, you know, for somebody to just disappear. You know, you'll get locked up, whatever. OK, you know, but I mean, like there it's freaking like they are not playing any games. You know, especially like back in the day when it was kind of like um, in Peru with the Shining Path, like they weren't playing no games. You know what I mean? Yeah. The th you know, wh whenever there was like the um, the Fujimori regime, where you know they yeah. they you know he was one of the presidents that kind of like put an end to that um, because he fought fire with fire, and you know it was kind of like you know the the towns and the the people the townspeople really were kind of caught in the middle of this battle, but you know, where the government will come in and be like, okay, if you're with, if you're with the guerrilla, you're going to die. Right. So they snatch five people, they go kill them, whatever they leave. Right. And then the guerrilla comes and does the same thing. You know, Hey, if you're snitching on us, we're going to kill you. They snatch five people.
they die. You know what I mean? It's a very like um, kind of interesting situation that you get where exactly, you know, and it isn't really even tick for tack. It's just, you know, kind of like guessing and, you know, really kind of just disappearing people, you know, um, and it, obviously in Colombia, Uribe, um, Alvaro Uribe was the um, president that is most well known for, um, you know, his tactics, um, which are, you know, which have been criticized heavily, you know, and rightfully so, um, you know, of his way of, you know, kind of fighting with the, the FARC, especially in um, Colombia. So, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. another thing, you know, with these these places, you know, is that they have a very, like, tumultuous history, especially Colombia. I think that it's, if not, the country with the most, like, you know, like, up and down history of, you know, um, you know, you have the paramilitaries, you have the guerrilla, and, um, and then you have the, you know, the friggin', the international organizations that are also, you know, trying to invest in or, you know, take advantage of land or whatever, right? So it, there's a lot of different, you know, and then you have the illicit activities, you know, whether it's, you know, um, yeah, let's just call them illicit activities, whatever, right? Everybody knows. But the thing is that there are so many different hands in the in the sand, I guess you could say, Yeah. Um, yeah. that, you know, they never really get like a break. You know, it's always something, you know, that that is kind of going on and, you know, kind of screwing over people that, you know, it's really tough for, you know, communities to kind of be able to, to handle to a certain extent. Um, you know, and obviously I feel like the coast of was of Colombia was kind of um, more not necessarily pure, but they weren't as. Affected, Hot, I guess you could say at that time, but yeah, um, it was crazy for sure. But yeah, um, moving on to the next thing, um, I see you said that you were also a, a filmmaker. You said that you guys like made commercials and things like that. Yeah. Um. um so, so, how do you set your like? How do, no, you're good. So, like, how do you kind of set yourself apart from others? As, well, in terms of the kind of content which I, I choose to show, I think that you mm -hmm. know the black experience within America, the 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 experience is is not one scope, it's not one dimensional. I set myself apart just by being who I am. Like I, I was yeah, born like, in the developing world. I grew up in Chicago. Uh, after I'd say after high school, I went back to my uh, former home country. And I've been going back and forth internationally ever since then. And truthfully, just speaking my truth, talking about the places where I've gone, um, putting out this kind of content, I'm able to work across many different cultures just because of this. And I think it comes across just naturally. It's not uh, me attempting to do anything. I like, for instance, um, I, I've done commercials for Brazilian construction companies. Only because, you know, they happen to see something I had done somewhere else dealing with the culture and say, oh, hey, this you did a really good job with this. By the way, I have this com company. Would you like to work? With? Absolutely. I was uh, I, I did a I did the live streaming presentation at Harvard University uh, about two months ago um, mm -hmm. between the Department of Economics and the And I was able to do that because someone had saw a piece of content where I discussed um life within uh beijing 
And I did that from an objective place, at a place of like interest, a place of curiosity. And when I put out this content on social media, because we have this wonderful platform, um, you know, I, opportunities come. I, not just necessarily on Instagram, but on LinkedIn. I put off my, I put out my content on Facebook, and it's just, you know, sharing my own perspective on on globalization, sharing my own perspective. Um, that's how I'm able to differentiate myself, and also just being multilingual and having advertisements running across. In terms of like um, commercially, that's how I get my, that's how I get clients. Uh, running ad sets in, in different languages. Um, in terms of being a creative, um, when I travel or I go abroad, I love to film. I love to film what people are eating, what they're doing spiritually, what where they go for church, what do the women look like, what is the food like, what is this culture all about? And I do it from a place of of, of like curiosity. It's not a place of exploitation. And I, I get access to things which normally I don't think the average traveler would get a chance to see. And when I, you know, compress that and give you a concentrated little glimpse of culture, people hit me up randomly and like, wow, man, that's really cool. My grandmother used to live in that town. Or, hey, my dad was from that village. I happen to do this or I have a company that does this. And we be, we build a rapport and then we literally yeah. just go from there. So I, I, I did that. I didn't even do that purposefully. It happened organically where I would just create content about these places. And then people from those communities would just be like, oh, hey, that's really cool. What else do you do? And then we would begin a working relationship and, and dive in there. And I, you know, I, I, I am a marketer, but it came about organically. It came about, you know, purely. It didn't come about from like having some grand strategy. Now it's more of a strategy than it was when initially I started at the beginning of the pandemic. No, and that's an amazing story. You know, um, it kind of takes me back to like, you know, my time as a, you know, in the Peace Corps, where, you know, they kind of tell you just, you know, just get involved and see what happens. You know, to be honest, like, you know, a lot of the relationships that I, that I came across were very like organic. You know, it wasn't just because, you know, I had all this, you know, super mega experience, you know, and I was able to do all these amazing things. It's just that, you know, the relationships that I made, you know, there were different opportunities that came up, you know, some of them did work, some of them didn't, um, you know, I clicked with somebody and then, you know, we made an awesome project, right? Or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's very like, and that, to be honest with you, I feel like that is, to a certain extent, great, right? Because, you know, after you have that relationship, then you can kind of sit down and say, okay, you know, let's pull our resources, what can we do here with this specific topic, right? Or this specific issue? You know, how can we make it better? Right. But, you know, you I'd say that, you know, for anybody that wants to get into international aid work is to go into it with an open mind. Right. And I would say that, you know, just like most things, you need to focus on your relationships first. You know, focus on, you know, getting to know people, getting to know who they are, you know, get to know their their story, where they come from, you know, the the um, the essence of, you know, what you want to know about. Um, and then you can just go from there, you know, because after you sit down and listen and, you know, you're empathetic or, you know, you um, you show that you're very interested in the essence of it and not just to make a profit. Because, you know, if you come speaking numbers, you know, from right off the bat, you know, not only is that going to hinder your your relationship, they're just going to, you know, see you as a number and be like, OK, how can I kind of finesse and, you know, get my, uh, you know, get what I need instead of, you know, OK, let's do something that's going to be sustainable here. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and I wanted to just add another caveat to that. 
um, in this day and age with people traveling all over the world who are backpacking, who are, you know, going abroad to teach English, there's so much opportunity. Um, I specifically know of one young woman who ended up working for the United Nations. And the way she did Hello. it, was, she was a backpacker in Madagascar. Yep. And she happened to go yep. by the field office for the UN and say, hey, I'm here, I'm a backpacker, what's going on? She got involved on the ground level and she just fell in love with the culture. She fell in love with the place. And they, when something opened up, she was able to get an opportunity in the country, which eventually after several years, got her the position in New York City. So it's like, you don't necessarily have to go through the front door to get to where you need to go. If you show initiative and you're willing to be involved and the fact that she was already there in the place spoke volumes, you know, I'm just saying that there's many ways to get involved, even if you see like, I don't have yes. a master's or I don't have a doctorate as a barrier. No, yeah, the, the thing is that, you know, what I try to preach to people that are coming out of university or just people in general is get a degree. In, not necessarily in whatever, right? But just get it, just just get one. Just freaking get one. And then, you know, after that, you can either get certified or just start working and gain experience in whatever sector that you're interested in, right? Because we all can, you know, when we start working, we start building applicable skills to all jobs, right? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, does your major influence? Yes. Do I know a lot of people who have, you know, a degree in, Freaking English, but are working in international affairs, or you know, that are in international affairs, but they're you know teaching history or whatever. Yes, right. So you know, your major doesn't define you. You know, um, it. Re I feel like it really doesn't, right? But at the same time, what I wanted to say is that just as you said, there is so much opportunity for people to go abroad teaching English, and there aren't a lot of requirements. You do not have to be TESOL certified or TEFL or, you know, whatever acronym they want to use. ESL, yeah, you know, yeah. To try and, yeah, like, you know, to be super mega certified before you go. You do not. I'm not freaking certified, and I've been teaching for, like, the last 10 years. You know what I mean? Like, it's not – it's great if you have it, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not a requirement, and it doesn't bar you from employment, right? Especially – in you know for example colombia costa rica nicaragua right you know even in in asia as well you know i found a guy who was well connected um you know who had this company that you know placed english teachers with schools in colombia china and south korea right and he still freaking has it so if you want to go to any of those places or in general um just let me know please right because the thing is that if you get a degree, right, then, you know, obviously that's kind of the biggest requirement that they look for is that, you know, you have a degree. But after that, a lot of these places are looking for native English speakers, right, that come from the States, right? So that is an immediate in for you, right, as someone who just naturally speaks English, right? It's one of the things that they are looking for to be able to immerse their students and have them get, you know, a genuine English experience, you know, just like with any um, language teacher, you know, one of the first things that they want to know, are you a native speaker of this language? Right? So, you know, just like you said, that is a huge opportunity. If you want to travel or if you want to backpack, look into teaching English, right? Or, you know, or whatever subject 
in the place that you're going to, right? You can make money and travel. You know, I used to, you know, I, um, and there, it's a pretty nice wage, especially if you get on with a private school, right? You know, think, a lot of I think that, no, I'm sorry to cut you off. I think that these opportunities yeah. are important and it's even more important to have these opportunities in front of inner city children, have these opportunities in front of people who don't necessarily oh, yes. Um, yes. have have this, uh, you know? I of think that, yes, they the, don't. The most dangerous the thing is that, the most, yes. yeah. Like, the thing is that I feel like a lot of us don't take advantage of them because we don't freaking know. Yeah. You know, nobody came out to yeah. me and was like, hey, you want to travel? Go teach, go teach English, right? Like, there's nobody that, I mean, I'm not going to say that there's nobody because there are, right? But a lot of it is because people are not aware of it, right? I think that if we knew about these opportunities, then we would probably, you know, take advantage. But, you know, at the same time, um, you know, there's a group, just like any group of people in it, you know, in any place on earth that, you know, don't necessarily want to travel. But I feel like there are so many people that want to, but they're like, you know, either I don't have the money or, you know, they just can't, right? For economic yeah. or whatever reasons, yeah. right? But let me tell you this as well. A lot of these schools will pay for your flight. They'll give you an apartment. And, you know, they may even give you transportation to school, like a, a, um, a transportation fund, right? So, you know, there is such a huge opportunity in a simple thing as teaching English, and it can take you everywhere, right? I mean, it's, you know, the 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 sky is honestly the limit whenever it comes to, you know, opportunities, whenever it comes to teaching English. It can take you any and everywhere that you really want to go. It's an amazing opportunity. You have to be willing to open up your mind to something different, open up your mind to yeah. uh, the, the possibilities. And that's what the, the, the first step is just being interested. And I think that if there were some programs out there to just reach out to the inner city kids in the worst of the worst neighborhoods and just say, hey, listen, you have this opportunity. You could live in this or you can go and see the world and expand and, and, and engage. I think that, you know, even if just a fraction took it, this country would be better off in the long run. No, most definitely. You know, I mean, you know, and actually, a matter of fact, my mom used to teach in inner city and she made me go to the school for a week whenever I was on spring break because they weren't. She was like, you want to go to school with black kids for a week? Because I, I was in a PWI, like middle school, middle of nowhere, Tennessee. Oh, and this is oh, like wow. in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I was like, hell yeah, let's go. And then, yeah. you know, after that week, I was like, I'd much rather be in my PWI because <laughs> I got jacked up. <laughs> but that's, an, uh, that's another story. But oh, man, man I, I mean, you know, the thing is that, you know, honestly, if we want to be better as a people, you know, and as a country as well, we have to help everybody get ahead. You know, it's not just necessarily one group. Now, you know, I mean, there are a lot of us that, you know, have gotten ahead and, you know, obviously, you know, it shows. But at the same time, it's like we need more. You know, we need more global citizens um, because whenever you come back, honestly, and you can you know talk about being abroad, what it's like, you know, um, and where you've been, it changes you here. Because now you know a different way of living, you know, and you can understand it and talk about it. You know what I mean? And it honestly, it just changes the way that you think, you know, and it helps you to understand people in general better. You're not as, um, 
as rigid, you know, as a human being, you know, honestly, I feel like all university programs should have a study abroad aspect. And everybody, if you go to university, you should at least do a study abroad. At least. I wish that that was a requirement yeah. everywhere. Yeah. At, just go, you know, for six months, whatever. We'll give you a stipend, four or five K, whatever, you know, however much it is. I know that's a lot. But I mean, it should be a requirement because it, you know, it, it, it gives you a different perspective, which a lot of us need, you know, because we all do come from a place of privilege. And it's not even about just, you know, going to where the, um, the underprivileged are and now I can talk about it, right? It's about you going, you understand another culture, another way of living, and another way of looking at life and the meaning of life and the meaning of, you know, what it is to be a human being on earth. I think that it's a very enriching um, thing that, you know, university students, you know, who are going to be the next leaders of, you know, of America should definitely take a part of, you know. Um, but yeah. Absolutely. Um, any, anything else that you want people to know about Sun People Projections before we, before we sign um, off? Well, first off, I want to say thank you so much, Walter, for having me on here, uh, for discussing my company and who I am. My name is Ken Gua. I'm a director. I'm also a real estate investor. Uh, I'm based in New York City. Um, I, I'm often hopping around internationally. Uh, Sun People Productions, if you're, if, yep. you're, if you're interested in creating content, um, a little, uh, if you're interested in creating content and you want to do it with a fresh voice, fresh ideas, Check out my page. Uh, reach out to me. I'm open to uh, discuss uh, independent projects. I also have a short film called Bon Mama, which is called The Good Mother. It's uh, about um, a mother uh, fighting to pay for her children's schooling in Haiti. I'm taking that to film festivals, um, and hopefully this uh, this this spring. Um, and yeah, just stay tuned. Follow me on social media at Ken Gua. Uh, at K-E-N-N-G-W-A or at Sun People Productions and you can check out some of my content and, you know, only positivity and, and growth moving forward and, you know, thank you so much for having me and let's just keep sharing and, and keep growing and, and hopefully people are inspired by some of the stuff I create. Oh, of course. And, you know, honestly, like, I, I was super excited but now I'm even more excited for people to hear what we talked about here today. Um, you know, I think that we had a very enriching conversation that we'll, we'll definitely have to have a part two. Um, you know, I mean, this was, you know, something that I was looking forward to, but like I said, now I'm, I'm hyped, you know, um, and this is one of the things that I love about podcast podcasting is that you not only get to know people, right, but you get to know their experiences and, you know, sometimes you get to, you know, make amazing connections, which I did today. Um, you know, we wanted to thank you from the bottom of our hearts here at El Propio Rocky Podcast, and we'll we'll definitely keep in touch. I really look forward to enriching this relationship that we've built today. Thank you so much, Ken. No, you're very welcome. Um, gracias para toda mi gente allá. Gracias para toda la gente en Colombia también. Estoy aquí Ay, contigo siempre. Así es. Bueno, estamos hablando. Sí, chao, chao. Chao. chao.